Look, if you're a salesperson, you get punched in the face five times a day or more with, sorry, how do you compare again? Why are you better then? I got a demo from them yesterday and they seem like they do what you said really well. How do you respond to that? And if you're not giving them ammo, then every day you're going to be losing revenue. Welcome to the Blind Spots Podcast. This show is designed to help marketers and researchers understand just how to address blind spots in key go-to-market areas through primary research efforts. This podcast is brought to you by DoubleCheck Research, an established leader in win-loss and churn research and analysis with a mission to help clients improve their win rates by turning buyer insights into competitive advantage. My name's Ryan Sorley. I'm a founder, a researcher, a soon-to-be author, a husband to one and a dad to three, and your grateful and humble podcast host. Each show, I will engage with marketing, sales, product, and competitive intelligence experts in the B2B technology space in meaningful and thought-provoking conversations with actionable strategies on how to help product marketers and those with a love for research drive value across their organizations. If you're a product marketer, there's a pretty good chance that competitive intelligence falls into your area of responsibility in some way, shape, or form. Constantly hunting for competitive nuggets can be a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack, and many companies struggle to even really define what competitive intelligence means to them. Today's guest, Jason Smith, is a competitive intelligence expert who believes so strongly in the value of competitive intelligence that he co-founded Clue, a leading competitive enablement platform. Listen as Jason reveals the key characteristics of a modern, best-in-class competitive enablement effort on this episode of Blindspots. I'm super excited today to be joined by Jason Smith. If you know anything about competitive intelligence, you've probably heard Jason's name. He's the founder of Clue, the preeminent competitive intelligence or competitive enablement platform out there in the space. Uh, Jason and Clue work with companies like Workday, Cisco, Dell, and Drift, as an example. And over the years, they've raised about a little bit over $19 million in venture capital. This is not Jason's first foray into the world of entrepreneurship. This is number five. So besides being a really successful business person and entrepreneur, Jason has a lot of really interesting interests and stories behind him related to action and adventure primarily. A planted planted 100,000 trees, which we probably won't have time to get into the story behind that on this call. One of the things that, that stood out to me when looking at your background was that you have this action and adventure theme, right? You're a good guy, you're a successful entrepreneur, but you definitely seem to be maybe an adrenaline junkie. Would you agree with that? <laughs> um, glutton for punishment, maybe, glutton if I'm a five-time entrepreneur. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I like to be the edge of my comfort zone. That's good. I like that. I like that. That's a good way to describe it. So before we get into the who is Clue and, and why competitive intelligence, my opening question for you, Jason Smith, is what is the most dangerous thing you've ever done? <laughs> I might have to go with cage diving with live crocodiles. I do think that was one of the most 
scary. I don't know if it was actually that dangerous at the end of the day, as long as you didn't put your finger outside of the cage. But this was in South Africa. And my wife and I, as our kids are standing off to the side, this is a trip that we took, part of a world trip. And they lowered us in this cage into a pool of crocodiles. And like they were swimming around us and they are massive and they are terrifying once you're in that cage. And literally the only advice that this crazy South African guy gave us was, do not put your finger outside. They don't look like they're moving, but the minute you put your finger outside there, that looks like food and they move incredibly fast. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with that. Now, because you were in a cage, it doesn't sound really dangerous. <laughs> did you actually pay somebody for that experience or yeah. was that a freebie? I think my kids paid to send their parents in. Yeah. Ah, that makes a whole <laughs> lot of sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. So competitive intelligence, you know, all of the other experiences that you, you've had in the past, how does competitive intelligence match up? Like, why did you go down that path? Yeah, Clue, Clue is an interesting experience because before Clue, I was I was president of a company doing customer intelligence. So think Qualtrics, surveys, the research space. We'd grown that from a startup to 500 people. It was successful, but during that process, we were exposed to a lot of new competitors trying to take surveys online and create more of an engagement experience with uh, people online than on phones or in paper back in the day. And uh, through that process, we had a number of competitors pop up. And I remember we had maybe 100 salespeople scattered around the world, and I would sit on calls with these salespeople across from extremely educated prospects who would start to correct my own salespeople about what the competitor could and couldn't do. And it was this moment of like insecurity that I'd see across our sales team. And, and frankly, some of them just made silly claims, like claims that the educated prospect could quickly refute. And then you look like, you know, an idiot and the trust is broken in that deal. And I believed it impacted revenue. And so I set about trying to fix that problem internally. And we did kind of what we could at that point in time. It was Yammer days pre-Slack. We kind of fished through Yammer to get some stuff. We built a wiki and had the product team put together pages of information that we thought were relevant. It was great for two weeks and then it got out of date. Then salespeople would no longer look at it when it was out of date or it was too long and too clunky. And so then they revert back to Yammer and chats and emails and that would float through the inbox or float through your screen and great in the moment. And then you try and dig it up again and go, what was that email from Ryan that said that interesting thing about Competitor X? And it became this clunky experience all around. And so that lodged in my brain from building that business. And then, you know, we were thinking about how to solve it outside of the company. And that led to meeting my co-founder and iterating on the idea for Clue that we thought, what if we could combine the information in a more automated way? What if we could find a lot of information across the web and build basically a searchable database of that intel? And it evolved from there, right? We we thought maybe that's a crunch base on steroids, a Google Alerts on steroids. And then we realized there was this enormous amount of valuable information inside companies that sat inside of the Slack channel, in Salesforce, in emails, and now gong recordings and um, course recordings. And if we could tap into those and combine it with all the stuff that we find on the external web, then we have a real corpus of information that could provide real insight. And so, yeah, to finish this story, I thought I was super excited about machine learning. And I thought you could press a magic button 
and have all of this unstructured data end up being converted into this beautiful, elegant, digestible insight that we can put in front of sales teams, product teams, marketing teams. And the cold, hard reality is that's really hard and it's going to be a long time coming. So I'm a now a full believer in human in the loop. And so you, we've now got a pilot that has a bit of autopilot, but a bunch of knobs that they can turn as well and be ultra efficient now in flying that plane. And that's ultimately what we built in Clue and it's, uh, it seems to be working. Well, it seems that your Sir Isaac Newton moment when you're sitting under the tree and the apple hit you in the head and you uh, you had that moment, it, it actually aligns really well to, to a lot of, we, we ask a lot of questions in our research, the sales experience, and we score the salespeople on responsiveness or trustworthiness. or But there's also a score on, on knowledge of the competition. And every company we work with, that's always the lowest score, right? You know, people say, oh, is that something that we should fix? Or like, what, what do we do about that? And yeah, absolutely. They should fix it. But it's a really consistent issue that we see come up across all of the different organizations that we work with in the B2B SaaS space. space. So you're, you're really uh, onto something here for sure. The data sources that you described primarily internal and then, and then pulling publicly available information out. How do you kind of bucket data when you think about classifying competitive intelligence? Like what are the classification buckets? It's really interesting. I think, you know, we live in the world of uh, unstructured data largely. It's less about quantitative graphs and business intelligence type of pieces. It's much more about, did somebody say something negative? Did they say something positive? What was that? What's a landmine that somebody should lay if they're talking to a potential prospect who is engaged already with your competitor, strengths and weaknesses and what have you? So the world that we live in is unstructured. And so the buckets can be massive, like hundreds of categories of data that you can kind of thin slice it. But you're going to have broad stuff like things like you know, management changes, pricing changes, positioning changes, clients that they've added or lost, apps that they're launching, features that they're launching, changes that they might have on their web page, any page on their website, help docs that have indicated some new things that they've just launched from a technical nature articles and interviews that they might have with the CEO that might hint at where the future might be for where they're taking their business or new funding announcements. There's just such a long list of things. In fact, the way that I like to think of it is you have a company right now. Anybody listening to your podcast is in a company right now. Think of all of the things that your own company is doing that you can't keep track of, like winning and losing clients, advertising, hiring and firing, winning awards, not opening offices, getting funding. All of this stuff is difficult for you to keep track of in your own company. What I wanted to do was try and create a lens for everybody to understand how that's happening in their competitors' companies. So a couple of follow-on questions. One is... There's ethical competitive intelligence, which is what you're doing, right? You're collecting yep. a lot of information that's all public. It's all public, it's all in, or internal, and it's all yours or, or yours for the taking. And then there's this whole other area of competitive intelligence where you know people are going through garbage cans or secret shopping or pretending to be somebody they're not at a conference to try to get competitive intelligence. So when you think about the the ethical versus unethical practices around competitive intelligence. What are things people should avoid, really? You know, and, and what are the things people should lean into? We get asked all the time, particularly around secret shopping. Can you take demos of my competitor's software and report back to us and pose like a client? And it's just not something we do. I think you can err on honesty and still get a lot of interesting information. 
Now, I'll also say the internal stuff is where it gets really valuable, right? When salespeople are talking to prospects, they learn stuff. And where do they put it? When they understand that, oh, yeah, the competitor has just launched some new pricing thing, or they do have that feature now, or they are about to, and they just showed us a demo of it, that usually gets dropped in Slack. And so that's where we want to go fishing for some of that stuff. Now, is that illegal? No, you heard from a prospect who shared something with you about the competitor. It's very different than dumpster diving and doing something illicit. It's taking the information that you already have and actually mining it. And frankly, honestly, I think that's 90% of the problem. Like the really deep diving stuff, like leave that for the CIA and the FBI. Like for companies, you don't need corporate espionage typically. You actually just need to filter through a lot of the information that's in plain sight and extract the insight nuggets and deliver that back to the edges of your organization to use. That's great input and advice. It's the fringe competitive intelligence work that some people look for. It just feels icky at the end of the day and not not a business that I want to be in. And clearly you don't want to either as well. Sorry, one thing I will say to you is like, I don't think there's a company out there that hasn't seen the pricing of their competitors or hasn't gotten their hands on a proposal or somehow seen something that they shouldn't have. I think that's probably the ethical line that gets tricky. And once you get it, somebody, you know, a friendly forwards it to you. What do you do with it at that point? Do you not look at it and delete it? Do you look at it and then delete it? Do you look at it, summarize it, share it with your entire company and turn it into ammo? I think there's lines there that our individual companies need to think about. Yeah, indeed. And then uh, on the CI role in particular. So the companies that that we work with most often, if if they're large organizations, they have CI people or CI teams, but the midsize and smaller companies have a CI function that's part of maybe product marketing, or it could be a half of somebody's job. And that person reports to somebody who has no CI experience. So when you look at the evolution, putting CI on the map and making it a strategic role and then a strategic imperative for organizations, like where are we today? <laughs> like, yeah, that's a great yeah. question. You know, I think that's, that's and maybe it, it falls very nicely after your question about the nefarious version of competitive intelligence and find that ethical line. I think historically, competitive intelligence has been more on the librarian end of the spectrum, the analyst end of the spectrum, than it has been more tactical feeding the sales team. And yet you have salespeople doing their own version and product people doing their own version all the time. I think where it lives today largely is in product marketing. I think product marketers, probably 80 to 90% of our clients are product marketers. And if they are doing competitive intelligence, they might live within the marketing or product marketing team in doing so. And as you said, like, the Cisco's and the Dell's of the world, they have many, many people doing competitive intelligence, but they're kind of more of the exception. I'd say if you're in the kind of the 500 to 1500 or even 3000 person company, it's going to be either a product marketing role, a part-time product marketing role, or maybe a full-time compete role as more of a product marketer in kind of the newer gener- in the newer companies. So I personally think that this is like the product marketing function is growing like crazy. It is the area that is the glue connecting dots between product teams, marketing teams, sales teams, strategy teams. They're increasingly being seen as more and more strategic. And they're the ones that actually do a good job of producing you know, sales-ready or product-ready or marketing-ready content. So we're seeing them rise inside a lot of these organizations as not only the connective glue, but as great arbiters of the raw intel 
getting into insight and doing a good job synthesizing it into something that people will actually use. They think like marketers. And they realize that, frankly, if somebody isn't using their stuff, that's their problem. It's their fault. They need to figure out how to market it better, redistribute it better, make it shorter or tighter, where it's not necessarily everything, it's the thing they need. So when you think about the evolution of product marketing, you think about the role of CI, there's kind of an old way of looking at CI and there's a newer way of looking at CI. What is the future of CI? As we look at product marketing on the rise, as we look at CI being an important part of product marketing, like will CI have a seat at the table at some point? Does it have a seat at the table today? Tell me a little bit more about your vision for the future of CI. Yeah, hi, and this is why we have focused on the term competitive enablement more so than competitive intelligence. I think competitive intelligence, you kind of associate it with getting the intelligence, not enabling the team. And that there's a big difference between actually people leveraging the intelligence versus getting the intelligence. And I think that's the distinction that we try and look for. So some would argue that's more tactical than strategic. I would argue it's more impactful on revenue on a day-to-day level than anything else. And so I personally see that emergence of the revenue-oriented product marketer that realizes that they're a one to a thousand ratio of impact, where if they do it right, there's a thousand salespeople or a thousand people in the channel or a thousand others in the organization that could leverage the information in their day-to-day need and do well. Look, if you're a salesperson, you get punched in the face five times a day or more with, sorry, how do you compare again? Why are you better then? I got a demo from them yesterday and they seem like they do what you said really well. How do you respond to that? And if you're not giving them ammo, then every day you're going to be losing revenue. And normally right now, I think on the front lines, you're not losing deals by this massive percentage. You're losing it by like 51% to 49%. It's just, you do a lot of win-loss, Ryan, you see it. Like it's not huge things that are tipping it. It tends to be small kind of things that are going to ultimately add up to the reason why you choose somebody. So I think you need to worry about the details. You need to worry about the tactical pieces and you need to give the ammo to the front lines in a very digestible, intelligent way to enable them to do better business. So my view in some is that the more you can be connected to those front lines, the edges of your organization that are dealing with the public, and the more you can enable them with whatever intelligence that you've turned into digestible insight for them, then now you're really impacting the revenue in your organization. And ultimately, you're going to lift up through the organization as a result. It's such an important input into so many strategic decisions for most organizations. And you had mentioned this earlier, pricing a product when we were talking about the the sources or the inputs that come into competitive intelligence, strategy, sales enablement. When I look at the sales component that you, you were talking about and equipping salespeople with ammunition to go out there and have an important strategic discussion and impactful discussion with the, with the buyer, do you provide any sort of guidance? I, I know that you you have this amazing platform that enables CI teams and salespeople. Do you provide any guidance on how to deliver that CI in a sales environment? Because we hear, as I'm sure you do every day, that great salespeople are much more calm, cool, and collected, and they take they deliver CI information in a different way, right? 
they use it to their their advantage. But maybe less experienced salespeople use it as a way to try to cut the knees out of a competitor by saying negative things about them, which doesn't work. You know, exactly. uh, they start to hit the panic button and and start to to fling knives out. So tell me about do you provide or have any thoughts on the ways to use this as a impactful strategic competitive advantage? Yeah, I mean, that, that that comes back to content, right? Like you've got to have great content. If you say, say this to take them out at the knees, they're going to say that. If you say, this is how you should angle it, don't say it like this, but here's another way or another rep, here's a recording of how that rep said it and delivered it in an effective way and provide them with the examples, then you win. So ultimately, it is about that content. I think there's other modes too that the salespeople are actually consuming this with. When you're a brand new rep and you join an organization, you're in training mode, you're in an information absorption mode, you're willing to read through everything in detail and try and figure out where you stand. But when you're in the day-to-day battle, that's when you need, you know, the bits and pieces that are going to be tactical. That's when you don't want to be surprised about some new thing that your competitor's done that your prospect knows about, but you don't. And you need it delivered to them in a way that is, um, we always say, talk like you're the salesperson. How would you say it as a salesperson? How would you say it to a prospect? And often we're going back with our clients and getting them to rewrite how they've done some of the bullet points. It's not just a static, here's the information. You don't want to give them a whole press release. You want to pull out that individual element that says, interesting that they're actually now going down this path. It looks like they might not be approaching enterprises the same way that our company is. They're not SOC 2 compliant and they seem like they're offering an SMB tier. You know, that depends on where you want to take your business if you want to align with, you know, a more enterprise-oriented vendor or not. And so that's a way to deliver it. So those are the pieces that your content needs to say it like they're going to say it. Do you provide any sort of ongoing training or coaching to enable your clients to be more successful with their competitive intelligence uh, constantly. We're constantly do. doing that. And it's it's all about the best practices that you can pull together. I mean, Ryan, you and I shared a stage at some conferences where I got up and I talked not about Clue, but about the content that you would put into a battle card, the approach that you would do. You know, And again, this was a sales-centric version versus a product team or a marketing team, but very much guiding on here's what we've seen work, here's what we've seen done. We've seen thousands of battle cards now. We've seen hundreds of different compete programs put together. We've seen success. We've seen failure. We now know what some of the signals are that this is going to work or this isn't. Now, are we met with resistance sometimes because people do have their way of doing things? Absolutely. But what we can do is say, here's what we've seen as success at a company in a similar size to you that you know is worth X many billions of dollars. And here's how they were able to get this through to salespeople that didn't want to see another tool or input any more content. Here's how they were successful. And it would be example after example that we would give. We also put in a number of templates inside the platform to say, oh, it looks like you're writing a card on landmines. Do you want to see five examples of killer landmine cards? Here's five, right? And so guiding them on what good content looks like. And then what are some of those success signals that you've picked up on over the years for those programs that are successful. Yeah, and I think there's, um, so we, we've, we've talked a lot about the content piece and making sure that you dial in the right layers of content. So for instance, you know, if you're um, pulling up a battle card on a competitor, one of the first cards that you want or first elements of content you want on that is the prospect using these terms, right? So, and that will usually give you an indication 
that they've either talked to your competitor or not? Are they saying words like tile instead of card? Are they saying things like engine versus platform? There'll be a number of keys like that that will clue you in to understanding if they have already talked or engaged with the competitor. And once you've got that, now you're down the next path of saying, okay, now I know they've already spoken to my competitor. What now do I expect that competitor to have loaded their brain with? And that should be another card of, here's what your competitor is likely going to say about their solution. Here's what your competitor is likely going to say about you. Here's how you defend on that. Here's how you ask questions about that. And here's how you reposition about that. So you know, very common cards that live on, on battle cards. It's not about the news. You know, It's not about the basics. It's not about just finding, again, that's why we get away from a searchable database. It's about the tangible insights on content. But the other thing that gets overlooked, Ryan, is how you deliver this stuff. It can't be a fat deck. It can't be 17 pages. It's got to be light, digestible, super easily accessible content. You know, I always think of salespeople as the most challenging market to crack because they have no time to waste on something that's long. If they're getting punched in the face in a call, not in learning mode when they've joined, but every day in battle, they need to be able to click a button in their browser. And in Clues case, it's a browser extension. They can click it and they could go, what's the latest thing I need to know about competitor X? And they'll pull up a card instantly, right? Or compare competitor X to me and they'll pull up a comparison view. Or they're in Salesforce and they'll put in the competitor name. And that's when the battle card will pop up to say, this is the latest information you might need to know to trigger them for the next call. Those are the things where you have to put the light digestible content in their path, make it super easy to access and then super easy to leverage and digest. Okay, so the next question is for product marketers who have just inherited competitive intelligence and they don't know where to start. They go out there and look at resources available online. Um, They could leverage a platform like yours, but like, what are the fundamental steps that a new owner of CI who has no previous experience at all, but has been gracious enough to take on the responsibility, what do they do first? Yeah, it's a great question. And generally, that happens roughly around the 300-person mark, 200-person mark, where it becomes serious. And then a product marketer is either given a whole title around it or a partial title. And they need to do it in addition to five other jobs. So look, starting point one is leverage all the free resources that are available to you. From Google Alerts to Dex, like just use the basics. That's starting point one. Starting point two is we have a ton of those free resources. So if you need templates for battle cards, if you need what the structure should look like, if you're going to hack it together with a a wiki in Google Alerts, we can help you with all sorts of free resources. It's at clue.com slash resources, I think, or just go to clue.com and there's a resource tab there. Then I think there's a question of how much can one person do? And that's when they're going to start to look at platforms and tools to make them more efficient. And they are going to look at it through that first lens of, I just need something to help save me time. And that's where I think is the biggest gap right now in the decision-making of a new product marketer to make that call. Because they don't realize there could be such a higher calling on the revenue move that they could make versus just save me time. So usually that's where we have the conversation and our competitors have a conversation with those product marketers to say, what are you looking for? Do you want an easy lookup database, crunch-based style? Yeah, you could buy that. Or do you want a platform that you're going to build a compete program against that can grow with you? It's a bit like saying, do you want to start with Pipedrive or do you want Salesforce? All right, last question is a question about your legacy. 
So you've done a lot up to this point. Uh, you have so much to be proud of. When you retire at some point, which may be never for you because you could have probably retired many times already, what is the thing that you want to be remembered for? Wow. That's a heavy question to end, Ryan. I like it. Listen, uh, you know, I think what I want people to think about is that was a person that could see a need and had the passion and the grit to go after it. And he inspired a lot of people to do it with him. So if somebody was standing up my funeral, it would be Jason Smith was a great guy that inspired a lot of people to chase their dreams, created the environment for them to do that, and had the, uh, the grit and the determination to actually see something through that others couldn't. And that was Jason Smith, co-founder of Clue. If you're interested in diving deeper into the world of competitive enablement, check out Clue's brand new State of Competitive Enablement 2021 report, which you can find at clue.com. That's K-L-U-E.com. And if you'd like to connect with Jason directly, feel free to drop him a line at jason at clue.com. And if you'd like this show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And thanks for listening.